So we are moving to our second part of um, Saving Truth by Abdi Murray. Uh, I don't know if you can see the URL. There is uh, vinechurch.uk forward slash saving truth. You can go to that and it has all the resources on there as well uh, that you might want to look at. It has the uh, reading plan um, from the Bible app uh, and things like that. So you can go on there and look at that. And all sorts. And I, I, I felt it right, although... I'm not sure ever how to do it, but I've also put a link to buy the book if you want to buy the book. Uh, it's only right that if we're using someone else's material uh, that we should give them some credit for that. So uh, it, there's a link on there if you want to buy that, and you can buy it from all sorts of Christian bookshops, I believe, as well. Um, but that's what we're, we're in today. So last week we, we started with understanding what the world of uh, confusion is, what the the, the state of the world is really in, in a post-truth world. And, and today, uh, we look at this concept of the confu- confusion and the church. And so what we're bringing in this one is to, is to look at how the church plays its part specifically in this world of confusion, in this world that, that where truth is no longer a fixed point in, in, in space and time, as it were. Um, and so now we're looking at our part, I and mean, that's always good to do because we can always drift towards um, labelling people and, and, and demolishing people and, and, and ruining people just because we have this faith. We misuse it sometimes and we, 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 we get a little bit pious about it. And, and so I hope what this message really brings is where do we fit into that and how do you, how do you find that balance between speaking truth and, but also being, uh, being able to have a conversation about it we find i find in this time that uh, we're polarized in the world uh, that that we're fi- i'm finding certainly that now we're, we're we're creating our own little camps and conversation is becoming off limits uh, when we talk about even uh, our christian values as it were or even the word people who don't believe in the word people who don't believe in god and we're becoming so separated in that that we're now not even having a conversation so i think and i agree with abdu murray in this we need to come back to a place where the church was what it used to be uh, and that it stands firm in the truth but it's able to have a conversation with people it's a tricky one very tricky so we're going to take a good look at ourselves um, and explore in how prevalent it has become for churches to become to succumb to this post mine truth set and in particular we uh, delve into a set of verses that we must be careful uh, to be in uh, when it, these verses talk about being in the world but not of the world you must have heard these verses a lot of times I hope to really take these apart and get to grips of what, what was Jesus saying what is he what's the message he's got for us when he what does he mean by this and I think as Christians we're to engage with culture but we're not to be influenced by it and that is a very difficult thing to do as a Christian is not be influenced by culture um we must serve in it, but we not, must not become a slave to it. And there's a very fine line between the two. And so we must expose that so we can learn where the, 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 the line is. And so we need to tread this line between being compassionate to those that do not believe, so disagree with us, and that's fine. They disagree with us as long as we get the truth over, as long as we've told them what the truth is and we've been bold in that. But being compassionate to those that don't believe, but doing so in an uncompromising way just doesn't seem, two things don't seem to go together, do they, in this world? Don't seem to work. 
Uh, and he, and he, as uh, uh, Abdu Murray says in his book, we must be able to disagree without being disagreeable. <sighs> How is that possible? <laughs> Well, hopefully we'll discover something of that today uh, and how we can achieve that to a, a certain degree. We can't always do it perfectly, but hopefully we'll be able to find uh, and see that in here. So it's John 17, verses uh, 14 to 19, and it says this, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. I love the way, just in those verses initially, there's just Jesus just saying, look, obviously we're not Jesus. But I love the fact that he says, you're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. As Christians, we follow the way we, we want to be like Jesus. And he says, you're no longer a citizen of this world. Because my kingdom isn't here, my kingdom is in heaven. And this is an exciting verse to get into when he keeps repeating himself just initially. Keep, I kept rereading this when I was preparing. And just, just uh, he repeats himself there, not of the world, even as I'm not of it. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. You know, there's this, there's this following that Jesus wants us to do, to be like him. But there's somewhat of a, of a kind of paradox going on in these verses, I think, when it comes to how we see ourselves as Jesus describes. Um, in verse 14 and 15, I might only have 14 here. Uh, I do. So it's only verse 14. But verse uh, 14 and 15 says... Um, yeah, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. Particularly the part for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. And so he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. When you read this, you think he goes so far. We're so alike, you know, in with Jesus. And he says, but, whoa, hold on, just stop. I don't want them to be taken out of the world. And, and just from the surface, you think, well, that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? If you're reading this and you're, not, you're, you're maybe a Christian who's not seasoned enough in the word and, and also a non-believer, maybe you look at this and go, why didn't he go a bit further and take us out of the world with him? He, he did all the other stuff. We're with him in everything else, but we're still here. So on one hand, as Christians, Jesus says we're not of the world as he is not of the world but on the other hand Jesus prays that we're not taken out of the world but protected I think this is a key verse in understanding how we begin to be in the world that's not ours um, what Jesus I think wants us to understand when we just look at these ver the, this particular verse initially is that we're, we're no longer tied as it were, to the behaviour of the world anymore. We're no longer influenced by that so much so that we're, we're a slave to it. And he says, so you, 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 I don't want you to go because you're now part of my kingdom. And I need people to know that. I need people to know that you're part of the kingdom and I want them to come as well. So we're ambassadors for Christ coming and saying, whilst I'm here, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But when the day comes, I'm going with him. I'm going to be with him. 
And so no more am I tied to this, this flesh anymore. I'm no longer uh, a, a slave to it. I'm no longer driven by its desires and needs, although we are. Uh, we fall to it and we, 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 we have problems with uh, keeping it under control and keeping it in, in obedience to God. As our eternal lives, Jesus says, but you're with me now. You can't be removed from my hand. That's it. You're with me. So no longer do we focus on this fleshly being, as it were. It's no longer determines our future, our eternity. But my faith in Jesus determines my eternity. What Jesus does is first set our minds on a kingdom mindset, a selfless and Christ-driven faith-driven attitude that seeks to confirm that we are indeed not of this world. I've said this before, that we are aliens in this world. As Christians, no longer is this our home, but our temporary home until we return to him. And it's almost like Jesus saying, well, you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to lose because remember, this isn't your home anymore. Your home is with me in the kingdom of heaven. You've got nothing to lose here. And so it's no surprise that the Bible speaks of terrible things that could, will happen to Christians, uh, as, is, as is shown in the Bible, when we stand firm in the word, that at some point in the future we will be persecuted in some form or another. He says, but what have you got to lose? You're coming with me into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that we are not of this world as much as he isn't. And that verse alone speaks of a guarantee that only God can give. We're not only not of this world, but so far from it are we that we are as far as Jesus is from it. A concept we just cannot comprehend. But I'm here right now and I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with the challenges of this world. I'm struggling with the people around me. I'm struggling with their persecution of me. He says, but what have you got to lose? Because you're with me in the kingdom of heaven. And it's so difficult, isn't it? It's actually been, in some ways, I wonder if this time on, online, as, as it were, has made it easier to almost put ourselves in a little silo of, Christ, of Christianity. You know, we, don't, we, we, we ended up in lockdown not having much of an engagement with people before we discovered a certain um, online web conferencing facilities that I won't name uh, but because <laughs> I can't I won't promote, promote them at all um, but we got used to that and I wonder if that became a bit easier and then actually I then wonder if after that after those few weeks we thought wow hold on a second I'm I'm now not reading my bible because I've become so lazy in my silo I've kind of not felt almost like my flesh has felt I've not needed it I'm here, I'm not going out, I'm staying in. I can do more things than I could do before in my home. And then, and then that's where the deception comes in, isn't it? It's okay, just, just, just stay as you are. Just, you're a Christian and that's fine and that's enough. And now we have all this time on our hands. We still struggle to pick up the Bible. I still struggle to pick up the Bible. When there seems to be an abundance of time available.
but I love grace. <laughs> I love that God shows grace to us, that we have the luxury of picking up the word, that we can pick it up and investigate to reason, to look at, to accept, to enjoy. But this, this distance we have from the world, this is why we are hated. People don't like people who go out on their own, as it were. The world likes conformity. It likes you to obey their opinion. And so when you speak of a different, or the truth that's different from the worldly truth, lo and behold, suddenly you are hated. And for this reason, we are hated. But even as we are hated, we are not to hate. It's such an, it's such an easy reaction to hate. And there are a number, I can think of even many occasions that I can, I can still succumb to a, a temptation into hate, that I can end up suddenly finding myself I think I'm hating on that person. I, sh I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> doesn't mean they're right in what they do, but I shouldn't be hating that person. I've got to find a way to be able to have a conversation with the, the most person I, I hate the most. I've got to be able to find a way to get Jesus there in that conversation. doesn't mean that we are quiet, timid believers that hide our faith as if to cause offence. But if you are a Christian, if we are Christians, by definition, we already cause offence. We are already offensive by the very nature that we believe in Jesus. We are offensive. Matthew 10, verse 22, says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live in a godly life, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think we, we can always go in our heads and compare what that means for us uh, and say, well, I'm not, we're not as persecuted as, as Christians in China or, or in other countries around the world. But, but we, there is a persecution going on of sorts in our own lives. There are people who are who will persecute us for our faith. It may look different here than it does to somewhere else, but never underestimate uh, that, that there is a persecution going on. And even as we hear these warnings, if we're not ready to be hated, then I don't think we've heard the gospel in full. For as hatred comes to us, we must be ready to not only stand firm, but pray for those who persecute. How difficult is that? And, and I'm finding more and more that, that that probably isn't happening. That as church generally across the world that we're finding, sometimes finding ways to not pray because we find some self-righteousness to not pray for our enemies. It's not obvious all the time. It's just something we just don't do. We just, we just don't do it because we, they're our enemy. They don't like me, so... Why should I pray for them? Matthew 5, verse 44 says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you. This is the balance we're trying to find when we're doing this, the, this study, this sermon series. We're trying to acknowledge that people will persecute Christians and the church because of what it believes, that it believes and stands on Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the church must be in a position to pray for them, for those that persecute. This is, this is not some political, flimsy theology, okay? This is not some left or right or extreme left or extreme right. It's not any of that, okay? It's not liberalism. It's not anything like that. We're not talking about anything to do with politics. We're talking about the word. And what the word says is pray for your enemies. And God, I think, acknowledges that we find it hard. And that's okay. But we have to find a way through with Jesus. We have to find a way to pray for people who do not agree with us. Because we're going to need to have those conversations with people that we encounter. But maybe we, we sit here now, maybe we can end up thinking, is that it? I just sit back and take what's coming to me. So I take the hit. And then I pray. The reason why we need to pray for our enemies in particular is because what awaits those who reject the gospel is far worse than what they're going to ever do to us. What awaits those who do not embrace and accept God as their Lord, uh, Jesus as Lord and Saviour is far worse than what they could ever do to us. And you might think, well, what if they kill us? But we're going to be with Jesus. <laughs> Dare I say, this is a win-win. We share the word, we get persecuted for it, even as we know Christian brothers and sisters getting killed in other countries, what they know to be true is that even if they get killed today, they're going to see their, their Lord in heaven. What an amazing attitude to have. James 4 verse 4 says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Those who willfully make friendships with the world at the cost of God become an enemy of God. And what, we, that, what, what that means, what that's saying is if the, if the, the value of the friendship of, of the world overrides my faith in God compromises on his word then we have become friends with, with the world does that make sense? it's not saying don't make friends in the world rather using it as an idol rather saying that uh, I will at any cost I can't, I can't detach myself from the world because I'm scared of the consequences if we make the world our God if we replace God with the world that is the friendship that is being talked about here that that elevates it above God. When that happens, we choose to be an enemy of God. It's a warning for us. It's a warning for churches. A warning for Christians. The word friendship in Greek here is translated as, uh, as phila, philia, philia, that's the one, philia. As you know, there's loads of other words to do that uh, translate love. This particular word, when it talks about love, in this context, is often translated as brotherly love. 
It's like the closest love you can have uh, to, to something, to your brother, to your sister, to your family, in effect. And James uses this word and the accompanying disgust, I would, I would describe it, to such an effect that the opposite of this word in Greek is phobos. Do you know what that is? Phobia. The opposite of this word of love is phobia. I thought, wow, God is asking us to be phobic to the world, not to disown it, as it were, not to, not to um, judge it, because that's not our job to do, but we can't be friends with the world when it replaces God. That, that relationship cannot override our relationship with God. God must come first. So this attitude must almost be we have a phobia towards the world. To be phobic to the world, but to serve Christ in it as he served. And the other reason why this simply isn't a case of sitting back and taking a hit is because we are called, that we are, what we are called to do and be something specific in our passive activism. That sentence doesn't make sense because I haven't written it properly. Um, we're called to do something specific. And I called it a passive activism. Because what we're trying to do is we're not being disagreeable, but we can disagree. Does that make sense? So it's like a passive activism. It doesn't mean we, we then shun that person, we, we, we expel them, but we don't move on the truth. And we can still have a conversation. Matthew 5, verses 13 to 14 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. I would say probably where I grew up, this is a common term, salt of the earth. You're salt of the earth, mate. Salt of the earth. But obviously, this is meant in a different context. This saltiness cannot be understated. To be salt and light is to disagree without being disagreeable. Does that make sense? To disagree, a bit of salt in our conversation, but to be light, so not to be disagreeable. James 1 verse 20 says, my dear, uh, 19 to 20, so my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. So we must not compromise on the truth of Scripture for the sake of the culture, but we must avoid demonizing those who disagree with us. It's very easy to do. So the Bible can help us out again. Colossians 4 verse 6 says this, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Everyone. I'd underline that word if I could. Everyone. Not brothers, not sisters. Everyone. The most disagreeable person. Everyone. The most agreeable person. Everyone. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt 
that it just doesn't sound like that conforming to the world that everyone else does. That there is a truth that I know and understand in Jesus Christ. That's the sort in my conversation. Something comes through in my conversation that just doesn't sit with a worldview. And so this is where we can lose people who veer towards a version of grace that just allows everyone to be, as it were, who they want to be, to validate their truth. Then grace is as dull as dishwater. It is pointless. But grace that leads to salvation has to be seasoned with salt if we believe that in order to take advantage of that grace that leads to salvation then we must all repent of a worldly state of mind. The gospel teaches that we are all broken people with sin, anger and hatred harbouring in our hearts. Not one is good. But as those that have discovered truth in Christ, we must be ready to bring the message in its unfiltered truth, but with wisdom and clarity. This is why we are getting into the word so you know the reason for your hope. Titus 3 verse 1 to 3 says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. As Christians, as much as we can, we're no longer here. And we shouldn't be here anymore. We shouldn't be in this place anymore, in that state of mind in Titus. We shouldn't be living in malice and envy and hating one another. In as much as we can do here today in what we've got to work with, right? But that's why Jesus came, because he acknowledged that we were not able to do this on our own, if actually at all, we weren't able to do this whatsoever on our own. And so whilst we're here in the world, and he says, don't take him out of the world, all this stuff you're going to have to struggle with, but because you're now in me, when you die, you're going to end up with me. And so what have you got to lose? Titus, uh, sorry, it is uh, not Titus, sorry. We've got that one already. Uh, as Christians, we are no longer what we were. Instead, we've been washed by God's mercy and grace. And you'd probably say that happens every day, Right? It has to. There is no time that washing ever stops. Whilst we speak with conviction by the word of God, we still need to recognise that those that disagree with us are where we once were. And so our story of our hatred and our disobedience and our foolishness, where then we ended up believing in Jesus, people need to hear that story. They need to hear that there's hope for them. The 
As believers, as the church, we must now especially strive for integrity. And integrity isn't jumping on a soapbox and shouting about why the world is going to hell, in my opinion. It isn't a self-righteous view. Instead, what integrity looks like is a union of God's people who can stand on God's word for the ultimate purpose of bringing a message of hope and salvation that has biblical integrity in conveying truth and life. For Christians, this biblical integrity has huge ramifications. Matthew 12, verse 36 to 37 says, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on a day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. So with biblical integrity comes grace and truth for those we speak to. Whatever ideas or challenges that people put to us, we must treat people with dignity and respect. Otherwise we create a little group of our own who pass judgment on everything else as if we've got everything sorted, as if we've got everything done. But it doesn't remove the fact that we must stand on truth. We can disagree, but we can tell people we disagree with them. That's fine. Stand on the word. I'll share with you that we've had, uh, and um, Danny knows this, uh, we had, and a couple of people actually here know this, that we had people come in uh, who have read the Satanic Bible, uh, who have worshipped things that are just um, mind-boggling, uh, who we've had long conversations with after the service. And we didn't have to kick him out of the church because we needed to have a conversation with them. There are people who are hoovering up all sorts of nonsense because it's so available and it's so readily available. And so if we're not bringing some truth or the truth into those situations... Why are we here? Why do we even do this? As Christians, we should know we're here to serve Jesus. And Jesus spoke to people who hated him. Hated him. Not, they didn't hide it, they hated him. And yet he still spoke to them. And he still wanted them to understand We come not to bring a diluted, culturally immersed message of Jesus, but one that is a message that will save someone's life, no matter how hard the truths are to hear. Romans 1 verse 16 uh, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, the sorts of things that firefighters have to do to save people. In various situations, um, I, was, I worked for the fire brigade for probably about 12 years, I think, probably a bit longer than that, uh, in, in IT, but I, in the last sort of five, four or five years of my time there, I spent a lot of time with officers, firefighters, uh, because of the work I was doing, the projects I was working on. And, and the stories are horrific. The stories are absolutely horrific. But one thing that struck me is that when firefighters go into these, these situations, whether that's rescuing someone from a crushed car, whether that's rescuing someone from 
uh, a major incident, uh, a burning of buildings and all sorts of underground stations, as you might remember. All those really serious, major incidents. Do you know what they don't do? They don't let their prejudice seep in to that situation. And what I mean by that is if, if you take a situation where they're where trying to rescue someone from a, a motorway crash, where someone has caused it on their own volition, they've caused the fault themselves by stealing a car, by potentially killing someone else, do you know what they don't do? They don't stand around and say that they deserved it. You know what they do? They get the equipment out. And for the next seven hours or more, they're trying to rescue these people from a, an accident that they have caused themselves. Because that's what their passion is. They want people to live. People working in the NHS, they want people to live. They treat people who have even probably caused themselves to get COVID because they haven't taken precautions. But they don't sit there and go, well, you deserved it. They put that aside and say, but for the greater good, because that's what the world talks about, the greater good, I want this person to live. If the world is doing that, we should be doing that as church. We need to be putting aside our prejudice, political prejudice, and say, for the greater good of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven, this person needs to hear the gospel and I need to have a conversation with them. And if we disagree, that's also okay. But I'm not going to shun them. I'm not going to ridicule them. I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to come up with fancy Bible verses that put some bang to rights. I'm going to try and talk them into Bible verses so they understand what Jesus was talking about. I'm going to explain to them what the Bible means. Because I want them to hear that their life can be saved from the wreckage of sin. And it just amazes me that these emergency services, these people working, and they still have this determination and value of life to save every person, even when that person's actions have caused it themselves. And so it is with the gospel, and therefore with our words and actions. If we believe that repentance and faith in Jesus is the means by which we are saved, then above all else, we want people to be saved. I don't know how we validate in our head that it's okay to expel someone because they totally disagree with us. And even to the end, where they will absolutely refute God to the end. I've been, when I've been reading this book by Abdu, he speaks of a, of, a, of a relationship with these two guys, and I can't remember their names, it's apparently well known, I've not heard of it before and for the, their whole lives they were a Christian and then a non-Christian and they were philosophers, they were people that always debated about life about the Bible and for, for years, for a long long time possibly their whole lives they debated and you know what the guy that was absolutely against it not very long before he died he said you're right The Bible is right. He spent his whole life pouring himself into this guy. He says, it doesn't matter how, how wrong he thinks I am. I know I'm right because I've read the word. I've seen the truth. 
And I know Jesus. And God's put me on this mission to make sure he knows that Jesus is real. I think there are quite a number of stories like that where there's relationships that have gone on for their whole lives where people have been brought to the, the, the saving truth of Jesus Christ. Utterly opposed against but because we didn't reject them as Jesus doesn't reject us they continue they keep pouring in you know unless you walk away from me unless you say don't contact me ever again I'm going to keep telling you about Jesus because I want you to live I want to I want Jesus to save you from this wreckage If that means people disagree with us along the way, so be it. But let our words be true to the word so that we seek to bring a truthful, convicting, graceline message of salvation. Uh, Abdul Murray um, says in his book here, he says, If those who bear the name of Christ possess integrity and courage, they can change perceptions of the church and the gospel it proclaims. Integrity is the currency of truth. Courage is its backbone. When we adopt both, and perhaps only then, can the church be the city of light on a hill that Jesus calls it to be. Two Corinthians five, verse twenty: We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you, implore you. You know what that word even means? It means uh, with every living part of my soul, I I want you to know, be reconciled to God. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Remember, this is speaking to people that had lost the plot in Corinthians. These people had lost it in church. This letter is to them to say, be reconciled to God. These people are doing things that are just not of God, and yet he doesn't give up. And he says, please, I'm, I'm, I'm making my appeal as if Christ was making the appeal to you. Be reconciled. So why can't we do that with everyone and say, I implore you, and I'm going to keep imploring you, be reconciled to Christ. I go on purpose, I look for, um, as you know by now, I look for good quotes from Spurgeon. I think it's just, it's just wise words. And I thought, how, I, I don't know anything. I've read some books, you know, that he's written uh, and people that have written books about him. I thought, how do, where does he say this? He's quite, if you read a lot of quotes from Spurgeon, he's actually quite hard hitting. But when you read other quotes, some other quotes are like, this, this guy's just like, he just wants people to know about God. He wants people to know about Jesus. There's this quote here, and we'll finish on this. He says, love your fellow men and cry about them if you cannot bring them to Christ. If you cannot save them, you can weep over them. If you cannot give them a drop of cold water in hell, you can give them your heart's tears while they're still in this body. Do you see that utter determination? No matter what, I will cry over you. I will not hate over you. I will cry over you because I want you to be reconciled to God. That's where we need to be, not just us, but church as a whole. We should be weeping for those that are not in Christ Jesus. 
And so that's what we're here to do. We're here to share the gospel, even for those that will utterly, completely, 100% disagree with us. That's what we're here to do. Have a conversation. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid, get your Bible out. Have a look. If they ask you a question you don't know, tell them, can I get back to you? Because apart from anything else, there's a chance for another conversation later on. Don't be afraid to not know something. Just don't answer it in your own strength. I've tried it years ago, and it was a failure. (laughs) It's one of those things you just don't want to repeat ever again. When you get, sometimes when you go down this rabbit hole of of going, when someone asks you about creation or Genesis and and things like that, where people generally know about these things who are not Christians, if you're not assured in what, what Genesis represents, you can go down these really terrible rabbit holes when you try to explain what Genesis is. So I'm going to tell you, don't be afraid when people challenge you on the Bible or on, on the Word or on your faith. If you need to, take a day and say, can I get back to you on that? But let's have a conversation and let's not shun people away from what is potentially the change in their life. People poured energy and time into our lives here. The least we can do is do the same for others. I'm going to pray. And then we're going to have our last song. <clears throat> Lord, I just want to thank you that you, you are so gracious to us. You are so understanding. And yet, God, rightly so, you are truth. You are righteous and we are not. You are perfect and we are not. But Lord, I want to pray that we navigate this way of being a Christian in the right way of sticking, standing on truth, but being open to a conversation with people who who we disagree with. And I pray those words, Lord, that we... disagree but do not become disagreeable that we are salt and light so Lord I just thank you that you continually teach us through your Holy Spirit and I pray Lord that you show us that we can be salt and light in this neighbourhood in our work lives in our office lives in our whatever thing we're doing in the day May our conversation be sprinkled with salt so they may hear that there is a God that truly does want them to come to a salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the message. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you that we can continually seek you. And so, Lord, we just give this to you as a token of our appreciation as we worship.